Turn to 1 John chapter 2. Um, just also want to make note, please continue to pray for our youth as they are on uh, the, the high school retreat today. That's where Blake, as well as Melanie Mitchell and Sarah Schroeder and a host of our youth are in a, near Lexington at a Young Life camp. Uh, that's where they are this morning. So just continue to pray for them as we um, think about youth and you know, wanting them to walk with Christ, to abide with Christ. So we are in 1 John chapter 2. We might, we might make it to verse 3 today, or we might not. So if, um, if you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read all six verses, but I don't even think that we'll get there. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation of, for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we kn- may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him, in him ought, whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. May God, in his blessing of the reading of his word, you may be seated. So, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. All right, let's, let's, um, let's talk a little bit today about a topic that we oftentimes don't really hear a whole lot about in the midst of the church today. And that topic is the idea of wrath, right? The wrath of God. And I think today, uh, in our culture, within even our, our Western culture, we don't talk about that very much. And what we've done is we've taken the tea of the gospel and we've added so much sugar to it that we can barely even taste the tea sometimes. But we've removed the lemon completely out of the tea because we don't want to taste or get anywhere near anything that might be stringent or might make us feel uncomfortable. And yet I'm going to tell you that what we are going to read today in the Word of God, the revealed truth of God to His people, is something that should make you uncomfortable and uneasy. So the goal today, here's the goal. The goal today is to make you feel bad. So that we can build you up so that you know that you are saved. Like, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know the depths of your own depravity and the wrath of God that would befall you for your sin. But then I want you to know the grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and that it is in Christ that we are forgiven and loved and, and reconciled to Him. That's what propitiation means. Propitiation has you know, these, these different words meaning wrath and um, appeasement. Um, and how does the wrath of God fall upon sin? How does the holiness of God uh, remain in the midst of a sinful people? How does God do that? How does He work itself out? Well, you know, First John tells us that. There, there are these places. So let, let, me, let me jump in, all right? Um, so let's talk about this. So John, as an octogenarian, when he's writing this, he's in his 80s. He comes to the churches and he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. Now, with regard to this, you know, not sinning or being not sinning here is in, in correlation to the idea of knowing God. And, and when John writes it, he says, knowing God is sort of a threefold thing in your life. Um, 
It's, it's three things. It's one of faith. It is meaning that you cannot say, I love God and not claim that Jesus is the Lord of your life. That's faith. The other one is one of obedience. He talks about obedience in the Christian life. You cannot say that you love God and dismiss His commands. You can't do it. And then lastly, it says that you cannot say that you love God and hate your neighbor. There are these ideas of um, faith in Jesus, obedience to commands, and loving others around me. And really, that's the totality of what 1 John is trying to get to. The Apostle John, at the end of his life, is saying, these are the things. Now, he's writing these things because there are um, false teachers, the, the Gnostics. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago at the introduction. These Gnostics have come in and they say, you know, it doesn't matter how you live. You can live your life in such a way because the body is evil and the spirit is good. So whatever you do in the body, it doesn't matter. And what John says is, you know what? That smells like smoke and it's from the pit of hell. We don't want any part of that within our Christianity. He also says that people are no longer loving one another, but rather they're in conflict with one another. And he says that has no place within the family of God. That has no place in the church. Yes, there will be conflict because we're sinners. And yet we are meant to work through these things in love as we advance the, the message of Christ, as we advance the kingdom of God. And again, there are people there who are saying that, you know, Jesus, he was he was a great guy. You know, but, but he wasn't really man. He just appeared to be man. And John is saying, no, no, no. You need to have faith and trust that Jesus was fully God and fully man and that he died for you on the cross. And that is the essence of the gospel message. And we need to embrace it, but not just embrace it. We need to love it. And we need to love it and know that we are saved in it in such a way that then it, it literally emanates out from us. That the words of our mouth, the actions that we take, are actually expressing our love and faith and obedience to Jesus in all areas. And so to know God is, again, to be have faith, to obey, and to love others. Now, as we come to this, he says this, and this is really interesting. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, okay, now let me just clarify this. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God. We'll get to Romans 3 in just a little bit. But the reality is is that all of us, every day, sin, miss the mark, transgress His laws, don't do the things that we're supposed to do, and do the things that we're not supposed to do. All of us, I mean, and and here's where I'm, like my wife isn't here, but she knows this. I am so selfish. It is unbelievable the depths of my own selfishness. It is unbelievable when you begin to think about how you just want to do what you want to do all the time. When you just dwell upon that. I mean, every confession of sin, we should be on our knees going, Lord, I'm selfish. I'm selfish. Please help me. At least for me anyway. And I think my wife even might be praying, Lord, he's selfish. He's selfish. Please help him. Um, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Now, this idea of an advocate is this idea that that Jesus, and he's speaking of Jesus here, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And and, and really what we have in front of us is the idea of a law court. And and here's, here's where it is. We're the defendant in the law court of God, and God is the judge. God is the judge 
and we are the defendant, and we're sinners. We've transgressed his law. We've broken his rules. We were doing 150 miles an hour in a school zone, okay? I mean, like, we, we are bad people. And the defense, um, and there's a prosecutor, and that prosecutor is, is one who is named Satan. You know, and Satan comes and he brings his accusations as the prosecuting attorney. We read about this in Revelation chapter 12. Again, we're in the, we're in the throne room of God. We're in the, the, the judicial courts of heaven. And in, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, here's what it says about Satan and what he does. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his crisis have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, I don't understand how Satan accuses us before God, but I know that he plays this role of a prosecutor. And he says, you know, you can't trust this man because he will let you down. He was doing 150 in a school zone, and he needs to be punished. I mean, that's what it comes down to in this court, right? I'm just using that as an example. I've never done that, okay? Just so you know. Um, but, but here's what happens. We also have a defense attorney on our part. And that defense attorney is known as Jesus. And as the advocate, he comes and he says, you know, what he has done, I have paid for. I have paid the ticket. I have paid all of the you know, expenses for what has happened. And the blood of Christ washes over us. It covers us. And we are clean and righteous in Christ. So Satan accuses Jesus defends and God brings a verdict. And his verdict is this. His verdict is this, is that sins must be punished. But they are punished for every believer upon Jesus, our advocate. That's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel. Is that every sin that you've ever committed, past, present, and future, will be punished. It has to be punished or God is not a holy God. He is not a righteous God. He is not a just God. But because He's a just God and it must be punished, Jesus, because God loves us, took our place upon the cross. And this is, this is the good news that we have. I mean, Jesus is better. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but it seems like when you watch a, 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 a law show like Perry Mason, I mean, some of you guys, uh, I'm... I'm, I'm I've never watched Perry Mason, you know, but I'm dating, you know, like Perry Mason, like he didn't lose a lot of cases, right? He lost three cases ever, you know, and they were kind of like, eh, because they wanted to paint him in a good light. You know how many cases Jesus loses to his father, the judge, when Satan brings an accusation? Zero. He never loses a case. When the prosecution comes, the defense is always better, and it's always better to have Jesus on your side, Okay. Now, why is this so important? This is so important because in the, in the midst of this condemnation, we, we think about this, you know, in, in Romans 8, verse 34, I read this today. You know, who is to condemn us? You know, who is to condemn us? Now, Satan comes and condemns us, but I think that we even condemn ourselves at times. Like, how can we forgive ourselves? How can we forgive others? There's all this sin, and, and people will come, and it says Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So think about this, that, that every day that you sin, that Jesus is interceding on your behalf as your advocate. Every day, he takes your case to the Father and he says, you are acquitted. 
You are pardoned. You are declared righteous because of your faith and trust in Jesus. That's good news. That's superb news. Now, um, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. Nothing. Nor death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. At this point, I was told that somebody would ring a bell when there's a good truth. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Melissa has a little bell on her scooter, and she said, if I hear something that's really good, I'm going to ring the bell. And I'm like, come on, Melissa. You know, I mean, wake up a little bit. I mean, uh, so anyway, this is the good news, right? Like, this is the good news about being declared righteous, that we have an advocate with the Father. This is a theologically rich piece of Scripture. But notice what it says as we move on. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Look at verse 2. He, meaning Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, let me describe what that means, the whole world. We know that all those, all throughout the world, they will actually be saved, and their sins will be forgiven, and the wrath of God will be placated and appeased because of what Jesus has done. It's not a one-for-one, it's a one-for-all, for the whole world. So, All the saints, and think about this, all the saints that came before him who trusted in the Messiah, all the saints that came after him who have trusted in the Messiah, so there's this eternality to to his propitiation, his sacrifice. The NIV calls it an atoning sacrifice for the whole world, for all who would believe in him, past, present, and future in terms of time. But let's talk about um, this idea of propitiation. Because this idea of propitiation has the, the, the following connotations. It means that God will pour out His punishment, His wrath upon the ungodly. And we need to understand it in this way, that, that we have a need for propitiation. Propitiation is the wrath, satisfaction, the appeasement um, of God, and that He is satisfied with the death of Christ for our sins. That's what it means, propitiation. It happens four times in Scripture, twice in 1 John, once in Romans 3, and also in Hebrews chapter 2. It happens four times, that particular word. But let's talk about that, because I think that we have this misnomer that today that God is not angry with sinners. I mean, sometimes we even say this, God hates the sin, but loves the sinners, right? Have you heard that? Well, I think that there is great truth in part of that, in that God allows us, you know, through His providence and through His love, to remain here. But when you read the Bible, it's pretty clear that God hates sin and sinners. Okay? Let me, let me prove it to you. Okay? Don't, don't take my word for it. Let me just prove it to you. If you have your Bibles, turn over to the Psalms. Turn over to the Psalms and you'll see this. Psalm chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Psalm chapter 5, I have a couple psalms that we can go to to show this. Psalm chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Here's what the word of the Lord says. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate 
all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. There's not a lot of hating the sin and loving the sinners in that, okay? It's pretty much saying, because of the wickedness of man, he abhors these people. He hates them. All right? That's not the only place that we can go to. Um, Go to um, Psalm chapter 7. Chapter 7, Psalm chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. Notice what it says. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God does both love and abhor the sinner who is outside of Christ. And I want you to know that there is never a time in the history of man when God bends his bow and shoots an arrow that he ever misses. Turn over to Psalm chapter 11. Again, this is where it gets a little heavy right now, okay? Psalm chapter 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This idea of God's anger and wrath coming upon the wicked. Now, some of you might say, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that's Old Testament God, right? That's the Old Testament God. Certainly today, we have a happier, more lovely God. Turn with me to the most you know, uh, spoken of chapter in all the scriptures. Go to John chapter 3, okay? Go to John chapter 3. Let me, let me show you this. And we know this verse, right? John chapter 3, verse 16. It's on posters at, at Super Bowls and you have basketball games. And it says this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in, is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, there's the idea of condemnation in that verse. Go down to chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. There's this idea that the wrath of God abides on that sinner. And what pushes the wrath of God upon that sinner? It is the holiness of God. It is the righteousness of God. It is the justice of God. Even uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I mean, how do we deal with that? Or how about one more, one more. I'll just give you one more. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. 
Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk us children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. There's this, this idea of love for God and obedience to God and His commandments. And again, the sons of disobedience, the wrath of God comes upon them. Um, again, the, the, the need for um, propitiation. Let me, let me, there's um, the most famous sermon in all of America is a sermon given by Jonathan Edwards. And many of you have to read it. I had to read it in English class. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Right? Jonathan Edwards. Let me just read an excerpt from that. I don't know if you've ever read this, but let me read it. This is what probably sparked the Great Awakening. Jonathan Edwards, an amazing preacher, probably the greatest theologian that we have in in the English world. Here's what he says about the wrath of God. You get a lot of wrath today, but we're going to, I mean, okay. Be encouraged, brothers. All right, and sisters. Um, Here's what Jonathan Edwards says. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more, rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty. There's nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw His hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength, would ten, and if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus all you, thus all you that never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from being dead in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexperienced light and life are in the hands of an angry God. However, you may have reformed your life in many things and may have had religious affections and may keep up a form of religion in your families and closets and in the house of God. It is nothing but His mere pleasure that keeps you from being this moment swallowed up in the everlasting destruction. However unconvinced you may be now of the truth of what you hear, by and by you will be fully convinced of it. Those that are gone from being in the like circumstances with you, see that it was so with them. For destruction came suddenly upon most of them when they were expected nothing of it. And while they were saying peace and safety... 
Now they see that those things on which they depended for peace and safety were nothing but thin air and empty shadows. Brothers and sisters, are we relying upon thin air and empty shadows? Let me just read it. one more paragraph because this one. The God, and this, is, this, this makes me shiver. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in yours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night, that you was suffered to wake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep. And there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning, but that God's hand has held you up. There is no other reason to be given why you have not gone to hell since you have sat here in the house of God, provoking his pure eyes by your sinful, wicked manner of attending his solemn worship. Yet there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. Now let me read just the last sentence of this particular He says this, Therefore, and he he, he was going, Therefore, let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape to the mountain, lest you be consumed. And the mountain he is speaking of is this mountain called Calvary. It is this person named Jesus. It is this gospel, this good news that we have. Now, this nature... So, everybody's feeling pretty bad, right? Everybody's feeling a little bit heavy, right? Like that we, I'm like, wow! Like, the wrath of God, the holiness of God. But the nature of our propitiation, if you turn with me to Romans chapter 3, you'll see that it is a glorious promise to us. Romans chapter 3, as we speak speak about this, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says this, and and we'll get down to verse 25. um, or I'll just start in verse 23 because we're running out of time. Verse 23 says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that. And because we fall short and sin and fall short of the glory of God, and because of the holiness of God, the wrath of God falls upon us. But in verse 24, and that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now what is he saying there in verse 24? That it's a gift. The grace of God is a gift. How do I define grace? It is unmerited favor. You can also use the anacronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. The gospel message comes, and it is a gift for the guilty, not a reward for the righteous. That's what 24 is saying. And in verse 25, this word propitiation is used. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So all of that stuff that I just read from Jonathan Edwards, all of that 
that would befall those who are outside of Christ, because of what Jesus has done for us, we are covered with the blood of Christ. We, we are credited with His righteousness. We are declared righteous. And the, the wrath of God, the holiness of God, is, is, you know, it is worked out on the cross. You see, from noon to 3 p.m. on Good Friday, when Jesus hung on the cross, He took the sins of every person, past, present, and future, who would believe upon Him, and the infinite, eternal wrath of God was poured out from heaven upon Him. And at the end of it, Jesus declares, it is finished. It is finished. And so those of us who have believed in Jesus no longer have to be underneath the wrath of God, but rather we are enfolded into the family of God. We are loved by God because of what Jesus has done for us. As I think about the idea of propitiation, it, it makes um, me very grateful for the Lord Jesus and what He has done for us. And yet my heart is burdened for those who are outside of Christ. Those who believe in the shadows in the thin air, in the mist of this secular age, and the wisdom of the world. I think about that, and it makes me sad. It grieves my heart. Um, Carl Truman uh, says this. He's a theologian today, and he talks about this world that we live in. And he, and he talks about people um, not believing and trusting in Jesus, but believing in other things. And here's what he says. If we are above all what we think, what we feel, what we desire, then anything that interferes or obstructs those thoughts, feelings, or desires inhibits us as people and prevents us from being the self that we are convinced that we are. Now, that's a, a negative comment regarding those things, right? But basically... If the gospel message interferes with the way that I feel, the way that I think, the way that obstructs my thoughts and feelings or desires or inhibits me in any way or prevents me from being the true self that I am convinced I am, then I want to do nothing with it. And I will tell you that those individuals who do not trust and believe but rather trust in themselves, they are like that spider hanging from a thread above eternal fire. And what makes me grieve is that I know that there are people in my family, I know that there are people in my community who do not believe in Jesus. And the wrath of God will befall them. Every sin you have ever committed will be punished, either upon yourself with the wrath of God or on Jesus who takes the wrath of God upon Himself in your my little children I am writing these things to you that you may not sin but if anyone does sin we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous He is the propitiation for our sins 
and not only for ours, but, but also for the sins of the whole world. And we trust and believe and know that we are forgiven and loved and adopted into the family of God only, only through Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that the words of Romans 5 would ring true in our hearts and minds that we have been justified by faith and that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, You love us in Christ. You equip us in Christ. And Father, I pray, Lord, that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we would walk with You. Father, there will be times in our life where we are tempted to leave You and to pursue other other philosophies of the world. And Father, I pray that we would not do that, but that we would trust and believe and that we would know that Your Word is true. Father, at one time You called all of us um, Your enemies because of our sin. But Father, in Christ, we are now called sons and daughters of the Most High King. May we live in the midst of that promise. And Father, I pray, Lord, that we would pray for and bring the gospel to bear to those whose wrath hangs over their heads. Lord, help us. Lord, save them and us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.